Amen. Hey, good morning, y'all. A beautiful day. We are so used to when over the last... It didn't stop there. Sunday's coming, and so we're here Sunday, so praise the Lord. This, we should have gotten more applause than just one hand. But Let me ask y'all, how many, raise your hand if you, I don't know if you can see this or not, if you have a cross necklace on or a cross bracelet. So lots of us have them. I've got one. I've had this cross around my neck literally since early spring um, of 2001. And you know, maybe you just got it this morning. Maybe your husband gave you one for, for Easter, gave you a new cross necklace bracelet, or, or you gave your wife one, whatever. But, uh, or you could have been wearing it for years, I don't know. Some of the ones that we wear as bracelets or necklaces are super crazy elegant. They're just awesome. Mr. T-ish. I just went old school on y'all. Raise your hand if you remember Mr. T. Okay. Well, I don't have a... Mr. T went on. I got a subtle little cross around my neck. Anyway, special, whether it's on a bracelet or whether it's around you. But have you ever really sat down and really thought about what the cross really is? Because, you know, originally, 2,000 years ago to about 2,800 years ago, that it was nothing but an instrument. It was nothing but a tool that Rome used to execute criminals. And it was more... More than just a form of execution, it was a form of torture, of humiliation. The victim usually suffocated to death under the weight, kind of the weight of their own body. Back then, if you, were, if you would have been wearing a cross around your neck 2,000 years ago, it would be like today wearing, like wearing a little gold electric chair around your neck. It was, really would have been the exact same thing. And the fact that such an ugly really horrific instrument has become over time such a, a, a beautiful thing of, of elegance and of beauty. It is a testimony to what today, 2021 Sunday morning, April 4th, Easter, what it's really about. The resurrection, it's all about the resurrection. The resurrection is the day that took things that were broken, that were cruel, that were harsh, that were ugly, things that were horrific, twisted them around and made them beautiful, just made them beautiful again. The resurrection is redemption. The resurrection is, is transformation. And the resurrection doesn't make the cross a little less barbaric. The resurrection doesn't make the cross, it doesn't make it a little softer. It doesn't make it a little kinder. The resurrection, the truthfulness of the resurrection, the veracity of the resurrection. It, it is so powerful, y'all, it is so all-encompassing that it takes a symbol of torture and death and, and just a barbaric thing, something that's just so nasty, and it transforms that symbol into, into a symbol of life, a symbol of, of salvation. And I'm going to guess that maybe, probably, if you're like me, you haven't really thought about that little cross that's hanging around your neck quite like that. And so today I want to bring us back to, to the reality 
of what happened this weekend a couple thousand years ago. And we're going to look at, talk through a couple of, of important aspects of that. A couple of aspects of, of the resurrection that kind of run uh, hand in hand. Number one is the reality of the event. The reality. Did it really, really happen? So the reality of the event, number two, is the beautiful transformation that that event, that historical event, the beautiful transformation that it brings. And so like the beauty of the crosses that we wear around our necks, the resurrection points to, to a brutal, brutal reality, but at the same time displays this overwhelming beauty and transformation of grace. Without the resurrection, the cross is barbaric and the cross is, is meaningless. Now, with the resurrection, though, the cross equals our, our hope and our very salvation. So I want to talk for a second first, at least, about the reality of it, then we're, the proofs of it. And matter of fact, if you didn't get at the Welcome Center, we've got this little book Lee Strobel wrote called The Case for Easter. We've got, I don't know, there's probably 50 left. If you didn't get one, I want you to get one. It's a great little book. And so I want to talk about first the great proof. You know, as Jesus walked with us, as he lived, he foretold about his death in times in the Gospels, passages like Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 31, 31 and 32. The Bible says, and he, he being Jesus, he began to teach them, and them were his, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, Mark writes, and he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to, to rebuke him. So, number one, like his, his resurrection proves to me and you that all of the words that he spoke were true. And it proves that his sacrifice for our sins accomplished its work. When he's hanging on the cross, he said it's finished. Well, what's finished? The work, the, the reason, the very reason why he was born, it's finished. It's over. I accomplished what, what I came for. Since he rose from the grave, me and you can know that everybody who believes in him, everybody who places saving trust and faith in him will also be raised from the dead. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, Verse 17, Paul wrote, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Y'all, it's all about the resurrection. If he didn't walk out of the grave alive, then like, what are we even doing here? It's futile if he didn't walk out of the grave alive. Paul says that. And then in verse 21, that was verse 17. Verse 21, Paul writes, For as by a man came death, talking about Adam, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead fellow named John Well, he wrote this. He said, belief in the, so good. He said, belief in the resurrection is not an appendage. It's not an extra to the Christian faith. It is the Christian faith. It is, y'all, it is all about the resurrection. That's not some extra thing, right? And he, he said it's not an appendage to the Christian faith. It's proof that everything Jesus did, everything that he said was true. Without it, he makes a claim in John chapter 14, Jesus does, and without the resurrection, this claim that he makes, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Without the resurrection, that, that's nonsense. I mean, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Y'all, because of the resurrection, that claim is our only hope for salvation. And so as we sit here today, me and you can have huge confidence 
in both the truth, the reality of that event, and the power of his resurrection. And I know from my own experience that people, me and you, folks, scholars even, can argue, disagree about what his words meant, but no serious Bible scholar denies that Jesus was, an, uh, was a historical figure and that as, a, as that historical figure profoundly impacted his immediate world, his sphere, the people that were around him. In fact, witnesses, historical witnesses outside of the Bible confirmed that he did live and that he was crucified. People don't argue over that. And amazingly, history proves that the earliest followers, his earliest followers, and they, they were believers in the way. That's, that's the verbiage that was kind of used. They were crazy serious about their devotion to him. They were crazy serious about, about believing in, in his teachings. And they were crazy serious about his resurrection, that he literally, really, in history, walked out of that grave alive. Outside of the Bible, the Roman historian Tacitus, if you've ever heard of him, A.D. 116, he wrote about Nero. Nero was the emperor in the late first century, A.D. 64. Uh, he, Tacitus wrote about how, how Nero blamed, he burned Rome, blamed it on to quote the persons commonly called Christians who were hated. Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate. People don't argue about that. Other non-Christians, Josephus, Jewish historian, wrote about Jesus and his followers. Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman governor, complained in a letter about how the early Christians that he himself persecuted and punished and killed would sing hymns to Christ as to a God. The reality is those guys and a bunch of other witnesses, and we could talk about this for hours, they confirm that something happened, y'all, something monumental, something transformative took place in the early followers of Christ. Even the pagan Roman rulers, they testified to the fact that the earliest followers of Jesus who knew him well, who, who hung out with him, who walked the dusty roads of Israel with him, they didn't think he was just some other ordinary guy. So we've got, number one, I guess we've got this this great proof. And on the heels of that great proof, we've got a great cost. It's another ugly reality that, that, that ends up with a beautiful result. In the years after that, after that ascension, after Christ ascended to heaven, the disciples, all of them faced crazy persecution, horrific rejection. Acts chapter 12, verse 2, it tells us that, that the apostle James was killed by Herod Agrippa I, who was Herod the Great's grandson. Josephus tells us also that James, the half-brother of Jesus, was stoned to death by Jewish leaders. Origen, a second-century church father, he writes about Peter, the apostle Peter's crucifixion. Tradition tells us that every other apostle, all of them except for John, died martyrs' deaths. There's convincing proof in the Bible and outside of the Bible that a bunch of his other guys died for, the, for their faith, and they all faced horrific persecution for their belief. Well, their belief in what? Their belief in what? Their belief in the resurrection. Y'all, that's what they're preaching. As soon as he run, runs out of that grave alive, they're not walking around preaching a bunch of theology, a bunch of doctrine. They're preaching at the top of their lungs that a dead guy went in the grave and a live guy comes out of the grave. Y'all, that's what they're preaching. 
It's not all kind of deep seminary theology. A dead guy is walking around. That's what they're preaching. And those guys, because they saw it with their own eyes, and they saw him walking with their own eyes. And so these guys, men and women, they willingly gave their lives for what they saw with their own eyes rather than deny the resurrection. You think about it like this. Would they, just think about regular folks, would they willingly and knowingly die for a lie that they purposely fabricated or for a historical event that they witnessed with their own eyes? That faithfulness, that unwavering faithfulness to believe and to proclaim the resurrection, well, what did it get them? It didn't get them fame. Y'all, it didn't get them power. It didn't get them status. It got them dead. That's what it got them. It cost them everything. So that you can see this beautiful aspect to the reality of the resurrection. What a transformation that comes in the hearts of the disciples because of the certainty of the event. So you got this, this great proof, and tied to that, you got this great, this great cost. And then we begin to see the transformation that happens, a change of heart. And you may remember before the resurrection, before the crucifixion even, Peter was scared that night he was scared to admit to a young servant girl that he even knew Jesus. After the resurrection, though, Peter's the one that, that fearlessly, boldly proclaims the truth about Jesus to 3,500, 5,000 people at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 4, we talked about this last week, Peter and John, they speak boldly about Jesus, and we're told uh, they speak this to the, the high priest and the leaders in Acts 4.13. The high priest saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, fishermen. The high priest, it says, they were by the boldness. So the beauty of the resurrection, y'all, is, is the transformative power that it brings. Peter and John were changed by it. Countless, countless people throughout the ages have been, cha has been changed and transformed by it. January 17, 2001. It's what happened to me that morning at 5.30 a.m. And I realized that I, be I really believed and can I prove this beyond all doubt? Absolutely not. But I believed as sure as I was in my truck that Jesus walked out of that grave alive a couple thousand years ago. It, it rocked my world. It changed my life. And it was the resurrection because if that really happens, everything changes. Everything changes. Today, you can be transformed by that event as well. The second the resurrection comes into your life, you're going to allow yourself to be crucified with him. And from then on, every other moment is transformed from being, from being stuck and bound by the things of the world, shackled to the things of the world, to being freed and prepared for the things of eternity. And does that mean that life becomes a bowl of cherries? No, it does not. But you will experience freedom like you've never experienced freedom. So not only does the, the forgiving and the healing power of the resurrection reach out in front of us into every day of our future, it also reaches back into every day of our past. To participate in it is to believe in the cross, and in that belief, Jesus takes all of our sin. He takes all of our failures. He takes all of the shame and all of the guilt and he stirs it up in a bucket and he makes us beautiful again. 
And if we take part in that, if we participate in that, even the greatest failures, cataclysmic failures of our past, horrible things maybe that we've done, they're transformed completely. Y'all at the cross, through the redeems. He forgives our very worst moments. He redeems them. It's what he does. He's been in the redeeming business for a long time. And even our greatest sins, our greatest failures are morphed into victory. In the resurrection, your deepest regrets, all of us have them, y'all, we do. And the deepest, deep-seated in our heads and in our hearts regrets are transformed from unbearable shame. And if you've been living with shame for a year, five years, ten years, twenty, I don't know, that is not what God has for you. He can take those regrets and transform them from the deepest shame to screaming from the mountaintops of his amazing grace and, and, and love and mercy. In the resurrection, y'all, me and you can say God fixes stuff, God loves, God uses, God draws near to, God protects, God helps people who've done jacked up things like me and you. You can say my failure is no longer my shame. I'm transformed by the resurrection and my story now is about how good God is when I'm not. He changes your story. How powerful his love can be when I am slap in the middle of being unlovable. How far his grace can reach out when I fail. How completely he can change worldviews. He can change the way a person thinks, the way they act, the way they speak, the way they react to people. How he can, he can change even who we are. Many folks point to James, Jesus' half-brother James, as one of the great proofs that Jesus actually rose from the dead. John chapter 7 says that before the resurrection, excuse me, before the, really before that old weekend, before the crucifixion even, James didn't believe in Jesus. He's like, that's my brother. Like, y'all don't know him. He's my brother. He, he didn't believe one word Jesus said. He didn't believe that he was the son of God. He didn't believe anything about him. But after the resurrection, James is the central elder in the Christian church. James is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. You think about your brother or your sister or your, your uncle or cousin Eddie who's may come walking out of that airstream to clean out the septic system, but, but in his bathrobe. I went down a rabbit trail. I apologize. Think about him. Think about your brother, your sister, your cousin, whatever. What would they have to do to convince you that they were the son of God? I would say, wouldn't the answer be like maybe rise from the dead? And that was James the Lord's half-brother. Before the crucifixion, all of his guys, all 12, they all deserted him. They all ran away. Afterwards, all 11 that were left, save Judas who, who was dead, they boldly proclaimed the resurrection. They boldly proclaimed the message of his death and his resurrection. Something happened to them. Something happened to them that can only be explained through their firsthand eyewitness of that event and the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And if you today, y'all, if you have not experienced, bathed in, wallowed up in the transformative power of the resurrection, let today be the day that you enter into that. 
And if you're, if you're here and you already put your faith in Christ 20 years ago, 20 weeks ago, 30 years ago, I don't know, let today be a day that you move forward in its power. Let its power make you bold and let it make you free. So we see, number three, we see hearts changed, lives changed. Number three, excuse me, number four, let's talk about the empty tomb for just a sec. That tomb, through the resurrection, that, that cold, dank, dark, hard, heartless tomb itself, the tomb is transformed into a symbol of hope. Matthew chapter 28, verse 13. It shows us that there is little debate as to, to whether or not the tomb was empty. Nobody argues, really. No historian in the Bible, outside the Bible, argues if the tomb was empty or not. They argue about how it got empty, but nobody argues whether it's empty or not. And so even the haters, even Jesus' haters, they admitted that. So rather than to say he's still there, because he wasn't, the Jewish leaders bribed the guards and told them that there in Matthew 28 that you were to say the disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. So the priest, they couldn't produce proof that his body remained in the tomb. So that seemed like a plausible explanation. Somebody came and stole the body. But over the years and over the decades later, their lie unraveled as, the, as, as Jesus' guys faced, the pers faced persecution, rejection, death for their insistence of what? That the tomb was empty because he was walking out. So we don't argue about that it was empty, but how it got empty. 500 plus different witnesses see him. They're witnesses. And I'd say this, if you... Think about the tomb. Think about a graveyard. Think about a cemetery. If you're looking for a place to relax, if you're looking for a place to connect with folks, I'm going to guess that you're not going to choose a graveyard. You're not going to choose a cemetery. It's the last place that anybody's going to go to find hope. But the resurrection does, does more than just engrave some tombstone. The resurrection transforms the meaning and the impact and the result of the grave itself. Now that cold, hard, heartless, dank tomb is for us as Christ followers a symbol of, of life and a symbol of, of hope. It's found in the tomb because it's empty. Y'all, he, he died, for, we, we talked about it at length Friday night. He dies for your sins. He died for this guilt that the devil has just put all up in your ear. And he really did die for that, and it really did pay the penalty. God is just, and that penalty had to be paid. But then three days later, he rose. It changes everything. Think about death. I lived my whole life petrified of death, but the resurrection changes that. It changes the face of death for his people. Death's no longer a prison. Death's no longer a shackle. It's no longer chains wrapped all up around your ankles. Now it's a doorway into the very presence of God, Easter says that you can put truth in a grave, but it ain't going to stay there. Easter says that you can put the way in a grave, but it ain't going to stay there. It completely transforms death. Without it, death is just this tragic ending of life. It's just over. With it, death is just the beginning of eternal life. Without the resurrection, death is where, where our strength finally poops out. But with it, our eternal glory begins. Colossians 3, Paul said this. He encourages us. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above 
where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So you got the empty tomb, and last, I want to share this with you, last. The change becomes complete. There's completion. Watchman Nee, if you've ever read Watchman Nee, he said our old history ends with the cross, but our new history begins with the resurrection. That may be the most beautiful and amazing transformation that the resurrection brings. It makes us new. The Bible says we're a new creation. It says we're born again. You're going to see an image of that in a couple of minutes when we have a couple of people that take the God plunge. Y'all, the resurrection doesn't make us a little better. It's not a step on the road to self-improvement. It's not like some Oprah show. It doesn't help us to be good. And what so many people kind of misunderstand is that being good or better is just really not the issue. Being, being good enough or kind enough is not just, that's not what God is looking for. To be a human being means to be broken and to be divided and to be separated from the Lord. To be human means to have the potential for incredible nobility and crazy unbelievable kindness and generosity, but it also means to have lots of moments of selfishness and greed and corruption and deceit and pridefulness. And in God, there is none of that. There's no deceitfulness, no pride, no greed. There's no corruption. So to be human means to be separated from God in need of the forgiveness and the transformation that, that can only be found in the resurrection. Some folks are going to say, well, if, if God wants to separate himself from me just because I'm a human being, then I really don't have anything to do with him. That's not the God that I don't have anything to do with. But we don't get it because we fail to realize that we are the ones that separated ourselves from him. He didn't separate himself from us. And the crucifixion and the resurrection are his work to bridge the gap between us. And he loves you so much that he made a way to bridge that gap. Despite your inherited weakness and sinfulness, despite your willful disobedience and pridefulness and weakness, you know that Friday of Easter weekend a transaction took place on the cross. Many call that the great exchange. A transaction took, almost like a business transaction. Almost like a business transaction. Something was bought at a price and it happened on that cross. And you know that transaction, the resurrection seals the deal on the transaction that was made. It's, you know, when you go shopping and you pay for something, you buy something, you pay a price for something, you get a receipt, you get a receipt like this, I'm not going to admit that I have an Ulta beauty receipt in my pocket, I don't even know what Ulta is, but you get a receipt, you buy something, you buy something of value, you pay something for it, and you, and you get a receipt, and that receipt validates that the purchase was made, it validates it, it says the purchase was made and you got a receipt to prove that. And if there's ever a question or if anything ever goes wrong, you got a receipt that says payment was made in full. On December the 14th, 2020, somebody bought something at Ulta. This says that payment was made in full. And y'all, for Christians that are bought by the blood of Christ, the payment for our salvation, it was made in full on that Friday late afternoon evening. Jesus crucified on the cross. The payment was made in full. Early on Sunday morning, we got a receipt. That resurrection is the receipt 
says that the payment was made in full. The empty tomb is my receipt. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's receipt for the payment of the death of his son. It's done. He says it's finished. And God, y'all, God extends that, that invitation of the resurrection to anybody who will simply put their faith and trust in him. And he wants to provide you with a notarized copy of that receipt. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, Because if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, does it say you might be saved? Does it say we'll flip a coin? Does it say that there's a 50-50 chance? No. It says that you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, can you prove that without, to, without any doubt? No, you can't. There would be no reason for faith. There would be no reason for belief. Faith bridges that gap. Confess it with your mouth. Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. The Bible says you will be saved. But if you don't want him here on earth with you, He's not going to force you to be with him forever in heaven. He's not about to bend your arm by, uh, you know, behind your back. If you don't want to accept that invitation, nobody's going to force you to take it. you got a chooser. you got free will. You get to choose. And understand, his call to you is not to be better. His plea is not, Ed, you need to get it under control, bro. His call is to come to me. His call is to follow me. Come to the cross and die to yourself. Come to the cross and die to the control that you think that you've got to be in control of everything. Jesus says, come to the cross and give me that. I'll take it. That's denying yourself. That's crucifying your flesh. Die to the substitutes that you've put in your life for 25 years. You've put everything in front of him, and you feel like and you know there's a void in your life, and you've been filling it with everything but him. He says, come and follow me and fill that void in your life with me. And he'll give you that receipt. And that receipt is belief and it's trust. He says, die to the sin that lingers all over you like bad breath. Take his invitation. He says, accept the receipt. Lay down the pride and the weakness of your humanity and be transformed on Easter 2021 by the... the, the, the the, the transformative power of the resurrection. Let his righteousness make you right. Look to the goodness of the Lord. Look to the forgiveness of the cross that will make you whole. It will fill that void. Let the power of the resurrection set you free. True freedom. Not the freedom that you think exists. True libertarian freedom. He does not want you to be good. He wants you to be forgiven. If you're forgiven, it'll change your worldview. He's looking, he's not looking for Ed to be a better this or a better that. He's looking for Ed to be forgiven. Because he knows if you will accept that and, and you will be forgiven, then all those other things kind of work themselves out. He wants you to be forgiven so that you can be near and dear to him. I want to remind you where we started today. We started talking about the cross. You know, we started talking about this cross that's hanging around our necks or our wrists, and these symbols remind us that God takes what is dark and broken and jacked up and messed up, and he resurrects that into something that is beautiful. Y'all, that is the business that he is in. Every single one of us 
all of us have been jacked up. And he'll take all of that and make it beautiful again. So I want to give you an opportunity today to participate in that resurrection. And it's not because I want you to be like me as a believer or somebody sitting next to you that, that is a believer. It's not because of that. Y'all, it's my prayer and it's my hope that you would allow him to make you beautiful and that you would allow him to make you free. It's my prayer that you will experience what it means to have your most ugliest moments, the worst things that have ever come out of your mouth or the worst actions that have just exploded out of your heart, transformed into a story, a God story of his forgiveness and grace and mercy. And that change often, almost always begins with a prayer. But I want you to know it doesn't end there. In fact, pray in this prayer from deep inside of you in your heart. What that means is that you want to live and bathe in that resurrection for the rest of your life and on into eternity. It means that you will ask Jesus to forgive your sins and lead and guide your life. And when you say yes to that, when you say yes to let me have that receipt, I want to hold that receipt, you will be changed. You will. You will be forgiven. You will be a child of God. But it's not the end, it's the beginning of a lifelong transformation. We call that the sanctification. It's the lifelong transformation where the resurrection works deeper and deeper into your very fiber and then it just comes out through your life. And so whether you pray that for the first time right this second or if, or if you've given your life to Jesus just years and years ago, I want to challenge you to come back next week. This is the first message in a series called the Easter Challenge. And I'm going to challenge us every week for four or five messages. So if that's a journey that you want to begin, if you want to accept that invitation, I want you to pray this resurrection prayer with me. I don't usually do this. But I want you to pray this with me. Whether you've been a believer forever, for 25, 30 years, or whatever, or if today is the day, I want you to pray this with me. I want you to repeat it after me. And you can repeat it to yourself or you can scream it from the mountaintops. But if you would, close your eyes. Lord, I admit that I have done some ugly things. Lord, I admit that I am a sinner and that I would never, never accept that forgiveness if I don't admit that I am a sinner. So Lord, I know I've done some ugly things. I know I've said ugly things. And Lord, I repent of those things. Lord, I turn away from them and I turn towards you. Lord, I ask your forgiveness. With honesty, Lord, I ask your forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus, that you, you really did pay the price for me on that Friday. Lord, I put my faith in you. Lord, I put my faith in the work on the cross. Lord, save me right now. I am ready to participate, to take part in your resurrection. Lord, fill me up with your Holy Spirit. Lord, I want to give my life to you. I want you to lead me and guide me. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, y'all, if that, if that was you today, if that was you today, let us know. 
go to that prayer tent over there. Come tackle me somewhere out here. I would love to talk to you about it. Deems just looked at me like he's going to tackle me in a minute. I would love to talk to you about it. It is why he birthed his church 2,000 years ago is to tell the world about him. That is what we do. It was his last words, go make disciples. So if that was you today, let us know. Take one of those welcome kits, fill out a connection card, whatever. Just let us know. We're going to have a couple of baptisms here in a minute. And if something happened to you today and you want to get baptized today and you didn't bring no baptism clothes, well, I live here. And my mine clothes probably big enough for you to wear, so I give you something, right? So if you, if you want to get baptized, we've got two. I'll do 200. So if you want that to be, if you want to do that today, no joke, we'd love to do it. Let me pray one more time and turn it over to y'all. Lord, we love you today. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love, and it's so undeserved. Lord, but you love us anyway. Lord, we, we dog cuss you and we spit in your face and you love us anyway. Lord, we don't deserve it, but we sure do thank you for it. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.